0: Hey, Possum Mufasa, bom dia, buongiorno, salam, malaikum, and shalom. Hello to you, dear listener. Welcome to the Michaelpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Today we've got the one and only Travis Tyler Fluck in the house, Denver's finest. And this is the type of spicy conversation that both of us are very engaged by. So I hope that you too will find purchase in this discourse we're about to have right now. Thank you all so much for helping make this an incredible year for the Micropreneur podcast. I could give you the cliff notes, but you've probably been following along if you're here listening to this now. And it was quite a spectacular year that took me all over the world, in fact. And I'm looking forward to 2024. And a huge, huge shout out to the generous sponsors of Mycopreneur Programming. Yes, a whole ecosystem of programming indeed. MicroBoost, M-Y-C-R-O-B-O-O-S-T, Functional Mushrooms. Get yourself set up with some MicroBoost Mushroom Coffee, some of the soft gel capsules like I got right here. Yeah, that's the Turkey Tail Chaga Reishi Immunity Blend I've got. And some gummies too while we're at it. So hit up MicroBoost at M-Y-C-R-O-B-O-O-S-T. Com. And Healing Herbals, purveyors of high-quality Kana extract. That's a heart-opening empathogen native to South Africa that I've personally been using, and I'm about to take some tonight. Check out HealingHerbals.shop or check them out on the gram. And thank you very much to MicroBoost and Healing Herbals for riding with me and helping make this programming possible. Before we get started, please consider rating and reviewing the Micropreneur podcast wherever you're listening. It helps so, so much. I appreciate all of you. I had a wonderful year this year, and so many of you were a part of that. Please welcome to the podcast, Travis Tyler Fluke. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, what's up, everybody? We've got the one and only Travis Tyler Fluke all the way out in Colorado right now. He is a beloved advocate for the psilocybin mushroom, a steward of the mushroom, and someone who's deeply, passionately invested in access and education surrounding mushrooms. How's it going today, Travis? And happy birthday. Thanks for joining us.
1: Ah, Thank you so much. I was so excited when you invited me on. I've been waiting a while. This is the type of spicy conversation I look forward to in this space. So yeah, I'm having a wonderful birthday so far. Let's keep going.
0: Okay. So what I'd love to dive into right off the bat is talking about what makes the legislative model currently in place in Colorado special. Because, From the outside looking in, there seems to be a lot of emphasis on the gifting economy and on people creating structures to give away mushrooms, which obviously directly undermines a lot of the corporate profit incentive that's in play and a lot of other emerging legislative landscapes where people want to sell the mushrooms and get top dollar and they want to patent, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it seems like the Colorado model in some ways is an antidote to that. So can you briefly outline for us? What is going right with the Colorado model? What's got you excited? And what's your approach to the legislation around mushrooms in Colorado?
1: Okay. Four years ago, when we were decriminalizing mushrooms, after we passed the ordinance, I had venture capitalists reach out to me because my name was all over in print. And they would snuggle up next to me and hand me their business card. And I would say to them, how do you plan on making money on something that I give away? And they didn't like that. Um, And at the time, you know, it was only Denver City and County where we could um, enjoy decriminalization. And when the state law became friendly to it, um, and that took a lot of mudslinging on the activist part to get that done. um, Once people started growing their own mushrooms, we realized that there's a ton of them and they don't they don't keep forever. So if you want to grow more mushrooms, we've got to give them away. And, um, uh, you know, working in the space, it's easy to give away mushrooms. The responsible part is supporting people with resources and um, community space to be able to, um, I don't want to say support again, but really foster an environment where people can work with these medicines in relationship and step away from the infantilization that we all. participate in with everything else.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's working so far. And I know that a lot of eyes are on Colorado as more ballot initiatives and measures get proposed in other states like California. We've seen the decriminalization of mushrooms in the Northeast with the work of Bay Staters, right? Recently in Portland, Maine and elsewhere it's growing. But obviously as the space develops and more people than ever arguably are interested in mushrooms and in psychedelics right now, there's a lot of different approaches. And one of the issues of contention that I've seen is this idea around selling mushrooms. And it seems to have people divided all over the place, both in the underground and in the more overt corporatized spaces about putting a dollar value on psilocybin mushrooms. Now, of course, some people get around this by saying, you're paying for the session, you're paying for the therapy, or you're paying for the coaching, or you're paying for this or for that. But I've run into repeatedly people in this community who just have very contrarian views about selling psilocybin mushrooms. Do you feel that there's room at all to put a dollar value on mushrooms? And how do you approach that experience when you start to think realistically about people trying to sustain their livelihoods and trying to build businesses? What's your whole take on the underground market and the selling of mushrooms?
1: Okay. So we live in a society where time equals money. So we just look at everything and subconsciously or consciously, we just think, how can we leverage this to uh, make our life easier with the the most amount of income I can incur with this thing? But on my path, I have um, experienced the mushroom as a sentience, so much more intelligent than we are, and how can you commodify that? you know? So I see it's a yes-end scenario. People are going to really try and commodify it. But as we've seen with tobacco, relationship has everything to do with how it responds to us. And I think that ultimately, the medicine knows what it's doing. And just like sand through a hand, that these medicines and people's desire to commodify it will not really work out in the end.
0: Yeah, it's quite interesting because it seems to be Uh, a lack of regulation overall, and a huge demand for the mushrooms. And I think one of the comments I had heard you make that registered with me, because I have a similar way I think I feel about mushrooms, is that the deepest way to do ceremon- ceremonial work or really deep work is with actual dried mushrooms and not necessarily with psilocybin mushroom gummies and right different products and so on and so forth. And so that's just an interesting bit. So if you research
1: indigenous use, nobody uses dried mushrooms. The Aztecs have codices that show them taking the fresh mushroom and dipping it in the honey made by a stingless wasp. And they even went so far as to say that they believed the spirit of the mushroom would leave 3 days after they would appear i started working with freeze dried mushrooms about 2 years ago and i had this revelation that i was actually meeting the the mushroom for the for the first time and realized that the dehydrated dried version is a amputated or truncated version of the medicine have you worked with freeze dried yet
0: not freeze dried fresh mushrooms yes and i Could definitely validate some of what you're saying based on those experiences. So the freeze
1: dried, um, because it takes the mushroom down to negative 40, it makes the chitin very brittle. So you get all everything that the fresh mushroom produces and the benefit of the pre-digestion of the, the brittle chitin. So that's what I love about it.
0: I guess that's what people are after when they're lemon teching or when they're including activator gum. I've been very impressed with the ingenuity of the underground market or the legacy market and the the different packagings. It's something I'm tracking. But in my heart of hearts, I also think that a lot of my most profound experiences have come from just eating mushrooms. Right. As opposed to productizing them. That being said, I'm not necessarily opposed to the product of them, but it is a loaded topic and one which requires a lot of nuance and uh, learning about. And I find myself frequently citing on the side of cognitive liberty, on this idea that adult humans should be able to do what they want with their consciousness and alter it in any way they see fit if they're not impacting adversely their community and people around them. So, yeah, that's
1: a hard concept for uh, a lot of people that are still puritanical, I guess is the easiest way to talk about it, like in their ways. They can't appreciate the pursuit of happiness argument. Um, Dr. Carl Hart is just such a master at, at laying it all out um, and has really shifted my, the way that I meet people in the conversation. It's about the culture of use, not the substance itself. You know, and most people feel that they have to condone the substance in order to give people the opportunity to use it freely. They like convolute those things.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of us are still navigating how to feel about this because I come from the the D.A.R.E. generation and from a household that unilaterally saw drugs as being the enemy, right? And obviously it was largely my early experiences with cannabis and mushrooms that shifted that narrative for me. And I didn't really apply that thinking to other substances until later, until I really got deeper down the rabbit hole and started reading all these different thinkers. And I've always been interested in psychopharmacological agents or drugs that would alter your brain chemistry in some way. But I never really understood the appeal or the argument for legalizing and normalizing some of these more What most people would consider radical substances until really, really the last few years. And it's something I'm still navigating as many of us are now. Another very interesting bit that I've heard you speak about, but I haven't really heard directly from you is your, your experience with 40 high dose mushroom trips. Now, what, 45. 45, what was the impetus behind this? Did you have a number pegged when you, when you kicked it off? Were you thinking, I'm going to go deep 45 times? Can you talk a little bit about that trajectory?
1: Um, I tell this story a lot because it's, um, it's very, a very pivotal uh, story for me. It's where I stopped perceiving the mushroom as a drug and started seeing it as a sentience. While well, we were collecting signatures for, for the Denver campaign, I kept meeting all these people that shared these stories of healing and they were willing to risk felony prosecution in order to work with the mushroom because nothing else worked. They were at their wits end and out of desperation, they went to the mushroom. And after we uh, passed the ordinance, I started going through a divorce process. And I was dealing with suicidal ideation and homicidal ideation. There was an, an affair involved. Uh, my best friends, or my best friend and my wife, uh, did the thing. So and the other thread that met me was Terence McKenna's prescriptive five dried grams. So I was at this moment where I knew that, that was it was time. And through the campaign, um, I actually I went out to Paul Stamets' farm and I met a guy from Iowa that was so um, impressed by me that he went back to Iowa and told his buddy, and then his buddy um, started communicating with me and he is now my mentor. He sent me a bag of five grams of Cambodian mushrooms. Have you ever worked with Cambodians? Very wise. If you look at Anger Watt and you take those mushrooms, you can see how they recreated structures in their mushroom visions into 3D. So he sent me these five grams and he was so excited about them. And, and I was like, all right, this is my time to do this. So I, I didn't have ritual at the time. I cleaned my bedroom, I took a shower, I burned some incense and made a tea. And I even left all the little bits in there and I drank it all down and nothing really happened. Call that a failure to launch, and I was uh, really thwarted. So the following week, I tried again, and this time I was going to consume the mushrooms I had been growing, Penis Envy, and I was going to take five grams of those. And I knew that they worked. Um, my intention was to break through, just like we think about in the DMT space, to um, leave your ego behind and exist in that realm. And that afternoon I was uh, sharing with a friend that I was gonna do this and I was really nervous and she said, well, why are you nervous? And I said, well, I wanna make sure I actually break through. And she said, well, why don't you just eat more? Um, I had these two PEs that I had grown and were in a jar in the top shelf of my closet and the two of them together weighed 7.6 grams. And I went to them and I looked up at the closet and I said, well, I really thought that like this day would come like months or years from now, but I guess today's the day. So I did the same thing, uh, made the tea, ate the the bits, put my eye thing on, put my earplugs in, and then I'm pretty sure I blacked out because I don't remember like coming up to a point, you know, like I remember it like coming on, but then... The first thing I remembered is I was in this space where they were operating on me. And I don't know, have you, have you done like super high doses? Okay. So they were operating on me and they were, had my chakras like out or doing something with them. I like intuitively knew that that's what it was. And then the very first time that I've ever heard the mushroom voice, they said, thank you for taking enough so that we could do our job. And that, that has always stuck with me. Um, and the second thing they said was, thank you for eating vegetarian the last two weeks so we didn't have to like do any cleanup. So after they did the surgery on me, I, became, I, I was birthed into this space where I was lucid, but I was completely not identified with my body at all. And intuitively, the first thing I said was, where's Jesus? And I don't even identify as Christian. So Jesus came to me and said, you of all people, what did you think this was going to be like? Duh. And duh was the only thing that my body said out loud the whole journey, like just duh. And I was sitting with this memory that I exist more in that realm than I do as an incarnated body. And then I had the intuitive sense to ask for Buddha. So Buddha shows up and, um, I re- realized that that far upstream, Buddha and Christ are the same thing. I was like, oh, damn. And then intuitively, I asked for my grandfather, who had transitioned. And I hung out with him. And then I hung out with my mom, who's still alive. But I got to hang out with her upstream. And then I got to hang out with Terrence McKenna and Dennis McKenna. And funny enough, if you follow the lineage of the PE, they're, they're from the spores that the McKenna's brought back way back, you know, long ago. So in the middle of all this, um, I had this sensation that felt like two football fields away. My body had to pee. And because I, I wasn't identifying with my body, I had to remember that I was even in the middle of an incarnation. That, that implies a lot. Just that little, like, little reflection implies, I'm like, oh, right, I'm Travis right now. And Travis has to pee. I couldn't conceive getting back in my body or getting to the bathroom and I was in my own bed and um, I peed the bed. And these two entities turned to one another and they said, Oh my God, that was easy. Oh my God. He figured it out. That was fast. And looking back, I really see that that was an act of surrender. And that's probably what they were remarking about. and you know how these things go—you get blasted with so much information that a lot of it just fades into obscurity. So I'll kind of like leave the vision there. And when I came out of it, um, my soon-to-be ex-wife was like um, trip sitting for me, and I was so grateful for her for the first time in months because I had been so poisoned with anger and everything else, and. And I was just so grateful. It was like being reborn, and I was in my own pee, and I was okay with that. And I wanted to prowl into the night, but my legs wouldn't function too well after that high a dose. And and, uh, it took me a long time to fall asleep. But when I woke up the next morning at 9.30, and the reason I remember that is because there's a timestamp on an email that I received from Dennis McKenna that he was having a conversation with a woman about grieving her father with ayahuasca. And I had nothing to do with the conversation. And he accidentally, quote unquote, accidentally put my name in the return line. So I'm reading down this email, and there's a point at which he asked her, were Peter or Jesus there? So I had this like physical artifact that I could like lean on the absurdity that I had just experienced. So I often say that it was the third most profound experience of my life, the toad being number two, but it, it really, um, seeded in me this, um, desire to keep going down this path of high dose work, you know? And then pretty quickly I learned about Kalindi and, um, yeah, I just stayed on it. It's
0: wild. I'm glad you were able to frame some of those visions into a, a lasting, compact framework that you could share and and speak about so eloquently. And for a lot of people who haven't had a high-dose experience, it would be difficult to embody that or to empathize with what you were going through. But I think for a lot of people who have had an ego death experience or something at the upper echelons of, of uh, taking a number of grams of mushrooms or maybe smoking 5-MeO-DMT, it might sound a little bit more relatable, uh, which you've just spoken about. Now, I'd be curious with your advocacy work, which you've been involved in the last few years with that in Colorado, do you ever have to sort of put on this more business matrix mindset cap when you're talking to people? Or do you lead with these types of stories that for all intents and purposes, might freak out or unsettle people who aren't familiar with High dose psychedelic work.
1: I meet people where they're at, but I, oftentimes I tell the allegory of the cave. You know how how am I supposed to tell the uh, the person chained in the cave and all they know of shadows is that there's a world of light and sound and richness and that there's this thing called the sun that's responsible for everything, including the cave and the shadows and all that. So I often talk about how do I explain hyperspace to those that have never been initiated just how do you do that
0: (laughs) it's tough i think a lot of science goes through the same sort of communication bottleneck where if someone's trying to explain the chemistry of the brain how do you reduce that to very basic accessible language when they're extraordinarily complicated functions typically so
1: well einstein said if you can't explain something simply you don't understand it or something to that effect
0: Tell that to all the peer-reviewed papers that get published, because that's one of my quips about the modern institutionalization of psychedelics is it almost feels like it's in some ways being co-opted by the language of modern academia and, and the medical lexicon. And it is incredibly obtuse and difficult to understand.
1: I was going to say, if you heard the poem about the six blind men that go visit the elephant.
0: Sure. I use that allegory all the time.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is what we're dealing with oh, it must be a paintbrush. <laughs>
0: you know, so like... <laughs> one other topic that I was writing about this morning that I was assigned a piece on this, and the more I think about it, the more I realize we need to have more nuance and tact with how we communicate about psychedelics, including and in beginning with this umbrella term of psychedelic, which was coined in 1956 by Humphrey Osmond, and which right combines psych- delic or the or delos psych being the mind and delos manifesting and there are a few different translations and i'm preaching to the choir here largely but yeah. it, it really encompasses way too many experiences at this point and something i've noticed is like when people talk about quote the psychedelic renaissance which is sort of the tip of the spear for a lot of these broader conversations it ends up it's, it's often the flagship molecules being referred to are ketamine and MDMA, which actually to me are very far removed from a lot of more tryptamine-derived experiences. Like the difference between a high-dose mushroom experience or a DMT experience and MDMA experience, those are hardly the same elephant that we're talking about. And yet they get rolled out when you're talking about the legalization and commercialization of psychedelics. It's just this incredibly vague term that's supposed to encompass millennia and you know all kinds of different experiences within it and it seems to be pretty clunky at this point
1: but i mean like let let babylon gonna do what babylon gonna do you know if you if you put like uh me and acacia lewis on stage and let us go you know people are gonna like pick up on what's what's reductive about all that you know i I think that there's uh more and more we don't really have to blend all the worlds um, I've been articulating how I want to leave the psychedelic space and step more into the mutual aid space, because in the in the psychedelic space I get looped in with all of this corporatization, all of this uh, reductive thinking, all of the you know like all of these tourists, and I want to um, exist in a space adjacent to it that works with these uh, entheogenic medicines. Is how I talk about it you know, and just like really, um, define myself in that way. And, you know, there's a, there's an account called healing from healing. And I left the maps conference saying to everybody, when you're ready to heal from healing, you come find me.
0: Yeah. Funny enough. I was actually on stage with Adam from healing from healing at the maps conference. That was my presentation buddy. And I think, uh, we both have a fairly cynical satirical view of, general rollout of everything and for me it was always mushrooms that really kicked me into this space when it was very much an underground space back in 2006 2007 and for a lot of us we were forced to keep our experiences underground it wasn't welcome in polite society it was some it was not something outside of certain echo chambers or small circles that you could confidently speak about without feeling like you were jeopardizing career prospects so in some ways it's very interesting to see that now that, again, this term psychedelic has been co-opted where you have psychedelic job boards. And it feels like it's almost lost all meaning to me because of the amount that the word psychedelic has just been rolled out in front of things. Like there was just psychedelic soccer at one of the events I was at. I heard someone call themselves the psychedelic sports agent. And it, it's sort of like the more you you roll it out and normalize it in a sense, I can see a, an upside to that in some ways. But I also question uh, when you just start rolling it out there as a preface before anything, you know, the psychedelic stock market. And that's actually informed a fair amount of the comedy or satire that I've done.
1: Well, to use tobacco as an example again, and the black box of a relationship, I'll wave Krishnamurti into this. Do you know who that is or was? So very high dude. One of his most enduring quotes is that it's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Right? So maybe the black box of these medicines is to perpetuate individualistic healing and to be more well-adjusted to the shit show, just like Soma.
0: Yeah, I was writing about Soma this morning too, yes. because I'm fascinated <laughs> with the Amanita Muscaria, which has largely been discredited oh, as no, no, being no, no, the Soma. No, it's
1: like Soma in Brave New
0: World. Okay, that Soma. All right, I was thinking about the Soma from the, the Rig Vitas.
1: Yeah, no. So so, um, you've read that book, right?
0: Yeah, Huxley.
1: Yeah, so everybody takes soma to be more well-adjusted to the shit show. And that's that's how I see all this um, regulated psilocybin taking us. You know, it's all about your depression and your anxiety when these things are perfectly healthy responses to the shit show. And if we aren't handling the systems of oppression and coming back to the land, there's no real healing taking place.
0: So you mentioned something earlier I'd love to dive into a little bit, and that's about lineages of different psilocybin mushrooms. And, right, there's various lineages, but because it's been an underground space for so long, a lot of that knowledge seems to be either lost or obfuscated and not readily available. Can you speak at all about any of the lineages you've worked with and maybe even elucidate a little bit about the penis envy lineage you mentioned?
1: So penis envy came into my world um... I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And the first time I consumed it, I was like, this is everything that I've been looking for in a mushroom. It just hit, all, it just checked all the boxes. Um, and, uh, and then I, I had to like search high and low to find it. And then when I moved to Denver, um, I had been growing mushrooms off and on for, I don't know, at this point, 22 years. And so I guess that, that was like 16 years and all my friends were growing cannabis, and I was like, oh, let's grow mushrooms. So I tracked down spores through this guy named Richard Hawk. Do you know who that name is? So back in the uh, day of the shroomery, there were these uh, uh, these big characters. Um, one of them went by Workman, and the other one, I think, went by Sporehawk. And they had the actual... P.E. that came from the Homestead kit. And then have you listened to the interview with Hamilton Morris and Rich G? Oh my god. So Rich G. is uh, the guy that is responsible for selecting out what became the P.E. from the Amazonian mushrooms that the McKennas brought back. So it went the McKennas and then eventually to this guy Rich G. And then this guy Richard Hawk. And then I've got them from Richard Hawk. So I kind of see the lineage there. Um, so the story is pretty crazy. This guy was working with the guy that got the Nobel Prize for witnessing cell division. So mitosis is that, or meiosis, one or the other. Yeah. So the, the guy that first witnessed mitosis in yeast cells, Rich G was his lab assistant. So he had an eye for like weird, anomalous shit, and he n- noticed that these Amazonian mushrooms were throwing out these little blue mutants. So he just started sub-selecting for them, and then all of a sudden they started growing gigantic. And in the 80s, he had these, these uh, giant Amazonian mushrooms, and it wasn't until he was in a uh, strip club, he had a bag of them, and this stripper was like, kind of like bugging out and somebody looked over her shoulder and said, Oh, what do you have? Penis envy? The name stuck, you know? So, um, I'm really glad that I kind of know the lineage or, or at least some of the stops along the way that, that my mushroom has, has gone on. Um, and I think through some DNA, um, what do they call it for PCRing, yes, we're gonna figure out like, oh, pink buffaloes are actually Thai mushrooms, but somebody got their hands on them and renamed them. You know, um, I really believe that the cultivator, um, especially if they consume the mushroom, like there's like a synthesis there. You know, and if you take mushrooms that were grown by a sex cult, you might you might get some of that. You know. Um, so I really, as a cultivator, am very um, intentional. I program them with the word illumination. Um, I communicate to them in the physical. I have a really crazy story about the second hyphae cup I won, um, but yeah, lineage um, I believe is really important. Cultivator to cultivator, I think that there's like a there's a, um, we call this uh, provenance. In the mineral community. If you have a um, quartz that was owned by a uh, famous collector, then it has provenance.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've inadvertently referenced that thinking about the legacy market, which I've been speaking more and more about or been asked to address, and this idea of the work ethic and the community values and the environment or the terra, if you will in which certain products or mushrooms were produced that will transfer onto the experience themselves so if you get a product or a chocolate that's made from someone who is operating in full integrity and knows their neighbor and is philanthropic in my experience those tend to be really awesome products even if it is a packaged mushroom chocolate so we'll that's find that not very interesting
1: not lost on me um, years ago I lived in Pittsburgh and I had, I was growing cannabis and I had to go through reconstructive surgery on my feet and my wife had to take care of the plants and she had no experience growing cannabis but this interesting thing happened she grew better cannabis than I did and we had this revelation that I was growing money and she was growing medicine so that just always stuck with me. And I really, I believe that.
0: What's going on right now in Denver? What are you working on? What are some of the circles you're gravitating towards? What are some of the exciting projects that we should be paying attention to? And what are you personally working on?
1: So I have this belief that we can reach better outcomes in community healing models than the regulation can. So most of my work is, is just uh, um, proving that. Um, I've been teaching a microdose class since April where I um, do an hour of lecture and then I gift the mushrooms and they're lab tested so we know that everybody leaves with capsules that have a milligram of psilocybin in them and, and then I run a, poor superior, a, a peer support group that is uh, piggybacked on that. So the microdose class is called Microdose Mondays. And the peer support group is called Talk About It Tuesdays. And I think it's like one of the very first spaces where we're actually giving the substance and then following up with people. And I, I go on a limb and explain what mutual aid is to everybody, because I think that, that, uh, when you hear it, people like they want to buy in. So it's a, a group of people getting together to meet their own needs recognizing that the systems that we depend on are not meeting them. Sound familiar? And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So I've had 355 students since April. So that's been going really well. And then I was at a mycology meetup a few weeks ago, and everybody was talking about um, their grows being successful and how everybody has tons of mushrooms. And I was like, oh, well, why don't we just have a gifting portal? Um, and so this really beautiful idea was born around having a space where people with abundance can come in proximity with people that have needs and meet each other and just freely gift it. You know, the mushroom once told me, as long as cows poop, y'all are going to have mushrooms. This isn't a scarcity issue. And that always stuck with me. So The very first iteration of the gift portal is happening on December 21st on the solstice. That was on purpose. And um, I recognize that giving away mushrooms just isn't all the, that part's easy. So I've invited um, medical professionals. I've invited therapeutic professionals and spiritual um, leaders to attend so that as people have questions they can be answered and kind of like see people in community and i've created these these uh greeting cards that on the inside have a space for uh, if it's a mushroom gift what the strain is what the potency is any cultivar notes and then a um uh, like the fireside numbers in there and the crisis hotlines in there and then on the back of the card is a mushroom, or a is a uh, recipe for intentional mushroom tea, and then a QR code that takes people to a one hundred and fifty page psilocybin one hundred and one guide. Um, and I feel feel pretty confident that this is the beginning of something really awesome. Um, so much so that I've invent, in, invited uh, legislators and elected officials to come hang out if they want.
0: That's awesome. I hope a few of them take you up on that invitation. I definitely would if I was in office, but uh, I would probably want to hang out with you even if there wasn't an event, just because I think more elected officials should probably probably be having a, a relationship with the mushroom. Now, one thing I've seen that I don't know how to feel about and I'm constantly evolving my own perspectives on these types of of issues is now that mushrooms are so popular and there's such a abundance of mushrooms. What ends up happening is people seem to eat them a lot more than ever before. And in a sense, it's becoming normalized. And I don't just mean microdosing, right? Microdosing is one version of this where you reiterate it, you repeatedly take mushrooms over and over. But also, it's been very normalized in the sense of like, let's have a mushroom chocolate or in some ways, mushrooms are replacing alcohol. And that's very much one of the narratives that's being rolled out that mushrooms are for socialization too. Now, I don't discredit recreational use at all. I think that there's a lot of value there, but I do potentially see some issues with repeated ingestion of mushrooms. And I think both of us and a lot of people who have used mushrooms for a while would say that the mushrooms have a way of telling you if you're consuming them too much or you're having too much medicine, if you will. But in a lot of high noise atmospheres where if you're normalizing eating mushroom chocolate at a concert or at a party or whatever, I can really foresee maybe a status quo, but also a near future where mushrooms just get treated like, like cannabis in a way where it's like, oh, we're going to use them a couple grams here. And then on Thursday, we're going to have another 3.5 grams. And then on Saturday, we're going to have a a macro dose. And just to wrap this thought up, I recently ran, ran into a friend at a barbecue and I had actually given him his first mushroom chocolate because he had told me a few times how he really wanted to try them. And he seemed earnest where he brought it up over period of, you know, multiple months in a row. And I gave him some mushroom chocolate. He ate it and he had a really uplifting, positive transformational experience that led him to quit drinking, which was actually when his child was due. And that just felt like a really awesome thing, right? Well, I see him at the barbecue and we were talking about another mutual friend who's a military veteran. The dude got into psychedelics last year and he's like, yeah, man, every time I see this guy, he's just going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. It's another ketamine retreat. And then it's he needs to go smoke five MEO. And there was almost some concern about the well being of the individual. And I, I think maybe in some ways we're headed towards that, where the narrative of psychedelics are good for you and you should take mushrooms, they're good for you. Maybe it gets taken to an extreme and there's no sensible guardrails in place, and you have people thinking that they're healing or they're they're benefiting when it could actually be exacerbating a lot of the issues. I'd just be curious if you've noticed this, is this something you've picked up on? Is it something you're at all concerned about or have have a, a, a take on?
1: It happens. You know, my concern is that, and maybe you know the word for this. So something, a statistically rare event that that scares the shit out of people, like a shark attack or a lightning strike. There's a term for it.
0: A black swan event.
1: Okay, so a black swan event, right? So th- these things are going to happen, and then they're going to lead to a conservative backlash. So I see that, and I don't think that's avoidable. You know, I'm becoming more and more of a Taoist and accepting perfection in everything. Um, so you know, I'm concerned to the extent that it's going to recriminalize uh, the things that I'm, I'm visibly doing now. But it's it's just gonna happen because people are really not okay with the shit show. They just don't know what to do about it. And when you feel powerless and uh, you're suffering, and you find um, even a temporary uh, escape from that, you're gonna you're gonna revisit it. You know, and I um, I like the word procreation now instead of recreation because I feel like recreation has been kind of dirtied you know, life affirming. Um, but I, you know, it took the mushroom procreationally for 24 years before I intentionally worked with it. So I don't see, I don't see that being a, a cul-de-sac, you know, um, but it may, uh, hopefully it may yield, uh, something very positive in the end. But I, I think that for those of us that commit to the process that we're going to Portray a state of being that is not obtainable without taking the work seriously. In the material realm, it's not the thing. It's the way the thing makes you feel. There was a Bufo uh, conference a few years ago. Did you catch any of the videos from that in Mexico? Just check it out. It's very cult-like. Very like, uh, you've seen Toy Story, The Claw. You know, these people are like, the toad, the toad. And they had such assurance that came through them. It didn't matter what they said. It's how they said it. And that's really what inspired me to call the toad in because I was like, I want that. I want that assurance. So through uh, commitment and sincerity, I've been able to achieve a, a pretty sustainable state of assurance. You know, and having direct experience with my multidimensional self, it allows me to be in the world but not of it more and more. So. Um, I think that eventually people are going to look at people that have done the work and say, I want that.
0: Yeah, I often try to lead by example, if you will. I used to be very outspoken as an evangelist. And yes, I do have a podcast now. But for many years, I was really trying to kind of push psychedelics on a lot of friends. It was a sense of this has benefited me a lot and I want it to benefit you. But I didn't appreciate that people have very different life circumstances, right? And just because, like, for example, it was a great feeling a lot of times for me and still is. Like, I always feel very grateful that my early mushroom experiences were also really positive, uplifting, beautiful experiences. But I have other friends who said, I took mushrooms and then my neck hurt the whole time and the back of my neck was in pain and I just wanted it to end. And obviously, you know, that's a very different proprioceptive lived experience for any number of reasons why that would have happened for that individual.
1: Well, we're missing context, you know, you, there's gotta be somewhere, someone that could give insight into that, you know, it's not going to be a psychologist. And again, I'll just call in the indigenous wisdom, you know, um, if you take medicine and it starts operating on you, you know, like there's a, there's a rhyme or reason to that. But we're just not cognizant of it because we are—we're like expecting it to be like ibuprofen. Oh, you take these mushrooms and you have a good time. It's just like, uh, yeah, like ibuprofen. But it's not. Each one of our bodies holds these medicines differently.
0: Yeah, I find it quite interesting to see this sort of matrix is another word that kind of ties in all of the different variables beyond set and setting because set and setting gets talked about a lot but this idea of matrix also factors in your genetics right and your family history and your things that you know in your environment
1: well what about your your actual like dna relationship to psilocybin mushrooms Like say your ancestors um, had scuffles with the mushrooms and and now you have to like reconcile with that. There's just so much stuff that's occluded from our ability to rationalize. The moon phase has a lot to do with it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there doesn't seem to be an intact science around it. Maybe there is, but also there's many of the different lineages as we've discussed a little bit of. And one of the things that maybe towards the end of our discourse here, I'd love to dive into is if you have any experience or any thoughts around the Amanita muscaria, because it's become, I love Amanita. It's, it's something I've recently adapted into my regimen and very much as a sleep aid, as something that's used like in a tincture form for sleep. And I've got other Amanitas. It grows in the region where I live and it's, it's a quite misunderstood mushroom, too. There's a, a lot of kind of cultural and historical baggage around it. Uh, we briefly touched upon Soma. Uh, R. Gordon Wasson had posited it to be the Soma and wrote a book about it. And that's largely been discredited. The Vikings and the Berserk, the myth of the Berserkers also has largely been discredited. But especially now that it's the Tide season, it's around the holidays, there's a lot of mythology and uh, a lot of historical misunderstanding around the role of Amanita and like, was Amanita the inspiration for Santa Claus? Like you're guaranteed going to see that post and article on your timeline if you're paying attention to mushroom stuff, that Santa was a mushroom. Yeah. And uh, but even more so that because it's unregulated and unscheduled, a lot of Amanita products are popping up all over the place and being marketed as magic mushrooms. And if you look at smoke shops all over the place, you'll see magic mushrooms or microdoses. And it, it just creates this whole other interesting dichotomy around if you don't do your due diligence and you're someone who's coming new to the world of psychoactive mushrooms and you see some things being sold as a magic mushroom, you might not even distinguish between the two. So what are some of your thoughts on Amanita and the current prevalence in the cultural landscape right now?
1: All right. Well, let's say that all mushrooms are magic. We'll just say that. Amanita. How do I start to talk about Amanita? Okay. Let's talk about the psilocybin mushroom is a composter. That's its function in nature. And that's how I see its action. In my own internal experience, it is a alchemical transmuter, a composter. The amanita is a mycorrhizal mushroom, so its function in nature is to uh, be a symbiote to a tree, and the mushroom mines the soil for minerals, and the tree through photosynthesis creates sugars, and they swap skis, right? And I really experience the amanita in that way as a mycorrhizal experience. It brings me into my body like nothing nothing else. And in reflection, before my Amanita use, I realized that I was in my head, in my body. The second thing that it does is gives me a profound sense of what I call pronoia. Have you heard of paranoia? That's the universe conspiring against you. So pronoia is the opposite, that the that things are working with you. Um, I haven't journeyed with the Amanita. It's all microdose, but it's just been so... Like, if psilocybin carves out the space, then the Amanita fills it in, you know? Um, And my mentor in the space is very controversial, the Amanita dreamer. And she really makes the argument that the Amanita has been uh, calling out to us for a long, long time to come back into relationship. And it's even the emoji in our phone. So I think a lot about that, how some of these things are like, hidden in plain sight that are just constantly communicating to us. And I was a little hesitant to prepare it myself, and I hemmed and hawed for a long time. And then she actually came to visit me and brought me all of these preparations, including a yogurt preparation. Um, And I literally had no excuse but just to, to consume it at that point. And after my very first experience, I got the best sleep ever and woke up feeling like, the universe was opening doors for me. And that has been my experience with Amanita. And because the caps vary 600% in potency, it really challenges you to um, intuit how you work with it.
0: Yeah, I can attest to the sleep aid with Amanita that I also have not journeyed with it, but I have had amazing sleep and some really robust dreams, which... Yep, yeah. dreams. So uh <laughs> so that- I-
1: let me talk about that for a second. Sure. So the way Amanita works in my dreams is it takes things um, in my life experience that I didn't have the emotional maturity to consciously process and then allows me to revisit them and to um, give, it the, give it the treatment that I can in this present um, state of my ability to consciously process. So the example I love to give is that it brought up my high school crush in a dream. And then I got to spend the whole day being so grateful that that didn't work out because she became a born again Christian and I became me. So that's how the Amanita um, works in my dreams.
0: Super important stuff. It'd probably take a therapist a while to, to be able to effect that, right? They might be able to discuss with you with talk therapy, but obviously there's limitations that are not necessarily imposed upon the world of psychoactive fungi which maybe is a more apt characterization than magic mushrooms. And I often use that tagline that all mushrooms are magic. I think I got it from Trad Cotter, who is one of my eccentric mycologist mentors in the space. And yeah, so lots lots that we've dove into today. And I'm sure that this is an ongoing discourse, as it is with so many of us who are working with mushrooms or called to the mushrooms. And I've always had this sense of confidence with whatever direction I'm going with this work, and that if you don't always center yourself and just focus on that relationship with the mushrooms, it usually tends to open doors as opposed to you know trying to trying to focus on little old me always being right and always being at the center of attention. And in that regard, it's been weird when people will ask me like, "Yeah, what's your plan with mycopreneur?" And I go, "I'm just going to try to keep removing barriers and obstacles between me and the mushroom and my relationship with it." and Kind of the rest of whatever direction I'm headed is going to be informed by those experiences, because uh, as we know, uh, especially right now, there's so many conspiring factors and externalities in play that people who think that they have a, a straight path forward, especially when working with mushrooms or psychedelics, it's often not the case. So it's probably best to be prepared for a bit of a detour and to recognize that maybe the detour is the journey after all. Right? That maybe that is the work that we're supposed to focus on. And it's been an interesting ride for sure. That's ongoing right now, but I want to leave you the last few minutes just to speak about anything we didn't touch on that. Maybe you want to bring up anything that you're working towards that you'd love a call to action for people listening to potentially support on or to, to connect with you on and, and uh, any hot takes you have to leave us with.
1: Oh, wow. We, we covered a lot of bases today and I'm, I'm glad that a lot of the my present day contemplations came through. Um, I really encourage people to have relationship with the mushroom, um, and let that be what it wants to be instead of trying to shape it in your image. When I was uh, originally growing the PE, I took data and considered things like biological efficiency and. One day, I uh, was working with with a woman uh, on my vegetable garden, and she was teaching me how to work with weeds instead of against them. So I went to the mushroom, and I said, you know, all this time I've been trying to shape you in my image. Why don't you tell me how you want to be shepherded? So I started this intuitive relationship where the mushroom would just present a fruit to me that got my attention. And I'd be like, oh, I'm supposed to clone that one, or I'm supposed to take spores. And all of a sudden, I started winning potency competitions. Um, so when people ask me what my secret is, I just keep going back to like, well, I just asked the mushroom. Um, so one of the, one of the things that, that I've realized is people are so research hungry uh, when they could just ask the mushroom. I had some psychedelic veterinarians come to me a few weeks ago, and they want me to give access to their patients, uh, animals and humans, and they told me that veterinarians as a population have a very high suicide rate. And I said to them, well, did you ask the mushrooms if they wanted to be employed in that way? And they said, well, no. So um, I have a dog pretty close to transitioning, and I took it upon myself to... Open the portal and ask the mushrooms if they wanted to be employed in that way. And they showed me how that we can work uh, with animals and the mushrooms. So I just keep encouraging people to have a real relationship with that sentience. I can't stress it enough.
0: That's a great place to put a cap on this conversation for now. And I just want to thank you. We got Travis, Tyler, Flook in the house, uh, just dropping all kinds of valuable intel. And happy birthday again, bro. I really appreciate you dropping by on your 44th birthday. We understand he may be headed out to some hot springs in the near future. So the forecast is looking good in Colorado today. So thanks a lot, Travis Tyler.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Come visit.
0: Let's have fun. On my way. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At mycopreneur podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micropreneur Podcast.